Grace has been particularly grumpy. I don't mm. know if you've got any parenting tips. She's just everything makes her cross. Everything. Mm, no, um, no, no parenting tips from this end. Really, nothing, nothing of any value. I think the I'm becoming a worse parent by every moment. <laughs> This morning, she wanted an apple, mm. um, so I gave her the apple, and then she cried because I'd given her the apple. She didn't want the apple, so I took the apple away. Then she cried because she wanted the apple. And then I asked her if she wanted the apple cut up, and she said she did. And then I cut the apple up, and then she cried because I'd broken the apple. <laughs> Excellent. That's great, isn't That's it? That's my life. I can imagine there's a little bit, there's a bit of your genetics making that work. How, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, Are you saying it's my fault? Well, it's got to be in a way it is. It's got to be at least half your fault, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, true. When is the right time to die? Hello, I'm Nairi. And I'm Phil. We're two friends trying to answer that question. For one of us, it's theoretical. And for the other, that's me, it's all too real. In this series, we'll follow Phil's journey living with an incurable and life-ending illness and unpack some of the key debates around assisted dying with some help from experts and campaigners. I wanted the chance to have this discussion in the UK courts. I never got that chance, but this is my story and this is my podcast. Phil, I'm going to launch in. Is that all right? Yes, you can launch in, Laurie. Yeah, go on. It sounds like such trepidation. Yeah, What's on. keeping you busy today? Well, actually, Charlotte is very busy around me, trying to make sure that everything that has to be done for everyone it gets done. So she is spectacularly busy. And we're just walking past me at pace. Just from my perspective, I'm I'm a bit zoned out, or um, because I was got on some new medication. I think it was last Thursday or something like that. And although it is helping to get some some more sleep, it's not. It's, it's during the day I'm pretty zombified so you know kind of like sunken eyes and I moan even more than usual so yeah we're, we're sort of struggling a bit on, on trying to get the medications to work at the most moment um, so if I sound even more stuttery than usual you know why so how much sleep do you get you said it's helping you sleep how much sleep do you get of an average night oh I don't know it's just very broken and bitty and not enough and it, it takes a long time to get the amount just to get through the day. So um, partly, I think it's partly my fault um, for never being a great sleeper, but then just adding a whole variety of other ingredients. And um, it just um, makes sleep really hard, you know, swollen joints and difficulties breathing and all that sort of stuff. I do have a secret weapon, though, which is this extraordinary. Uh, well, I have this um, night carer, a carer overnight called um, Helga, who comes... Um, and sort of sits and helps during the night, with particularly with the breathing apparatus. She constantly g- confounds and astounds me with all sorts of stuff about her life. So if you can imagine, you know, when, I, when I'm put to bed, she is, it's a bit like being at the dentist's. I'm on a breathing machine and can talk a couple of words on the out-breath. Helga's got it down to a sort of fine art of just I, what she calls prattling on about her life. So I just listen to her prattling on as we go about this fairly sort of um, involved routine and it transpires that Helga as well as being a nurse and a, a swimming pool attendant has also been a horse trainer and has won best of breed at Crofts she was I think she was in the Guinness Book of Records and you're going to ask me what for aren't you yeah what for she sounds amazing can you imagine I'm in the prone position 
on the breathing machine and this is going on and it was just getting mentioned in passing. And I'll go do on the outbreath of what for Helga. And she'll say, for the longest pee push with your nose. What? So my next thing is, so what does that involve? And she says, I pushed a pee <laughs> for two miles with my nose. What? And I say, what is, is this? You know, the other outbreath is, are you kidding me? And she'll say, no, it didn't quite make the Guinness Book of Records, but she did do it in her bikini. And the son did ask for her a topless photograph afterwards. With a, with a plaster on her nose. A pea? You did say pea, like the vegetable. I think it was a long Peterborough embankment. It could have been as far as, all the way to Great Casterton. What? Something like that. Why have I not heard of this? Partly because it was the 1970s. Anyway, she is a, a marvellous and um, unusual kind of spirit to have in the house. She sounds fabulous. I mean, does it help you sleep? No, of course not. And sometimes these conversations kick off at like three or four o'clock in the morning. And when I've been, I've been like part medicated... And she'll just pop into the conversation there. Um, her, her deer hound won best of breed at Crofts. You know, and then and my mind will start turning slowly over that idea. And so be it. She's lived. Helga has lived. In this episode, we're focusing on the law. Not only about the debates that happen in Parliament or courtrooms, but also the other end of the justice system, how it's enforced. But first, let's get an overview of the basics. Here's Adam Wagner, Human Rights Barrister at Doughty Street Chambers. The starting point is that committing or attempting to commit suicide is not itself a criminal offence. But it is a criminal offence for any person to encourage or assist the suicide of another. So what that means in practical reality for someone with, say, a progressive neurological disease, if they want to end their life, they can do it themselves. But anybody that they ask to help them, they are at risk of committing a criminal offence. And there is a maximum penalty for that criminal offence of 14 years imprisonment. Now, that's not quite the end of the story, because... Just because somebody has done the act, which could be a criminal offence, doesn't mean that the Crown Prosecution Service will necessarily prosecute. And there was a case brought by somebody called Debbie Purdy, and that case led to the Director of Public Prosecutions coming up with a policy which said that they wouldn't always prosecute. And the key question there is whether the prosecution is in the public interest. The policy isn't just a tick box exercise. So you couldn't just look at it and say, well, I know I won't be prosecuted or I know I will be prosecuted. But you can see in that policy some of the factors which will be taken into account. The policy says that prosecution is less likely if the victim has reached a voluntary, clear, settled and informed decision to commit suicide. And the suspect, that's the person who's seen to have been assisting, the suspect was wholly motivated by compassion. That's certainly not something which you could predict in advance as to whether somebody would be prosecuted or not. And every case will be decided on its own facts. Adam's given us a really nice overview of what the law says. But what's the reality of this on the ground? Not just for those with a terminal illness and their families, but also those who are responsible for enforcing it in real life situations, the police. 
Martin Underhill is a former police and crime commissioner. He has decades of experience in policing and has campaigned to change the law on assisted dying. Phil started by asking him how the police handle cases of a death of someone with a terminal illness. It depends on the circumstance because some people who uh, are terminally ill, uh, including a friend of mine, uh, killed themselves uh, without telling anybody, uh, left a note saying, I can't cope with this. Um, and I don't want to involve anyone because they'll be prosecuted. So I've ended my life. Um, as a detective inspector walking into that, there isn't a lot that can be done. It's not a suspicious death. It's classed as a suicide. The coroner it will go to a coroner's inquest and the coroner will be given a letter saying, I can't take this anymore. I've deliberately overdosed and um, I want you to look after my children. So that's the first point. There are thousands and thousands of those cases and, and that, that get lost in the ether of statistics. It gets far more complicated in two scenarios. The first is that, um, Phil, we're talking about your impending death, which is awful, um, but, but if you ask friends and family to get involved, that's an immediate red flag to the police because they then think, ah, oh, we've we've, someone's broken the law here and there will be a completely different investigation. The second uh, issue oh, sorry, is... Martin, if, what would that look like? I mean, uh, how uh, would that, you know, almost if you could walk me through what, what might happen. Okay, well, I'll walk you through two scenarios because th there are two... There's, there's three scenarios, but there's two in relation to the question you just asked. So, so the first one, which I'm just going to put out there and then park, is if you go abroad. So we'll deal with that separately. The second uh, scenario which you just asked me about, there are two... Uh, different layouts. The first would be that you, Phil, have made everybody aware in the media that you are going to uh, end your life early because you, you think the law should be changed, and then you are found dead. So the police would, uh, armed with the guidance from Keir Starmer in 2010, armed with the, the suicide act 1961, uh, they would walk into your house immediately treating it as a crime scene. And that is incredibly invasive, it's incredibly distressing, uh, and it will impact horrendously on your loved ones. Martin, let me stop you there, because I'm, this is a real surprise to me. It's because I've been vocal on this subject and saying that I suppose I'm prepared to break the law, that this would be more likely to be considered a crime, not less likely. It will be considered far more likely to be a crime. Wow, okay. Because, because um, it's very hard to kill yourself without someone helping you. And what, what will that look like? Because, again, I mean, so, so, this is... So what it would look like would the, your house and, and um, your body would be treated as a crime scene. So you would have a home office pathologist called to the house. You would have uh, a scene set around the house with tape. You would have a log, uh, logging people in and out of the house. Uh, you would have crime scene investigators and a senior detective in your house. They will be looking for evidence of how you died. Um, They'll be looking for puncture wounds on your body. They'll be looking for tablets. Um, and they will be treating the people in your house, um, your loved ones, as suspects in an assisted suicide. Um, and we have had three or four cases like that in the last five years. Um, and it is horrendous. And being very, you know, it's a kind of, this is a personal kind of selfish question. What happens to the body at the early stages? Okay, so let's just 
make sure we understand this. I'm, I'm putting this out there. What could happen? I'm not saying the police will treat your death as suspicious, although I strongly suspect they will. But if they do, then your body becomes an exhibit and there will be a post-mortem, uh, possibly two post-mortems to establish your cause of death. And then if people are, are interviewed in relation to your death, which is likely, um, your body will be held until the defence solicitors are happy with the results of, of what's happened to your body. Uh, and it could be several weeks before your body is released. Yeah, and I kind of heard that. And, you know, again, it's one of those things where um, I was wondering whether that is a, a real fear or a potential fear. And I think you're putting that in my court now. I mean, not you, but um, your expertise is putting that in my court as a real fear, something that is has a, a possibility or a probability of happening. The other scenario is that you are terminally ill with uh, MND uh, and you die, but you haven't been vocal and the police, you're not on the radar. Uh, the police in investigation would be far more cursory because you're not on the radar. Um, and uh, if you are terminally ill, you have to have something in the, in the exception, really, for the police to treat it as something different. Um, but what we're finding with all these high-profile families um, working with Dignity and Dying and various other charities is that by being vocal, they become under the spotlight. And then you will have the issue of if you die, the police are pressured to investigate. Let's, not, let's make no mistake here. You, when you become a police officer, you take an oath to the Queen and you say you will enforce the law. Now, rightly or wrongly, and I can tell you, and we'll talk about this later, the majority of senior police, police officers in this country feel the law is wrong, but you take your oath to the Queen and you will investigate a crime. And even though most policemen in their heart, and police women in their heart, feel that this is something that shouldn't be investigated, they will investigate it. I'm, I'm slightly stunned by that, Martin. I actually, you know, this, I've researched this topic, um, feel like I've done, you know, two-thirds of a degree in it over the last few years, and um, I hadn't spotted that. To some degree, you, saw, you think that having made a song and dance about it might actually make things easier, but, I mean, you really are confirming that it's likely to make things worse. Sadly, it will make it worse, and now I'll take you to the abroad issue we were talking about. If you say, I'm going to go to Switzerland, and it's well documented in the media, the police will knock on your door. And they will say to you, and this actually happened. Um, is it, and this is Anne and Jeff Whaley. Yes, thank you. It's Anne and Jeff Whaley. And um, they actually knocked on the door and said, we are here to make sure you understand the implications of what you said you're going to do in the press. Because if you do this, you will be arrested trying to leave the country. Uh, we can't stop you leaving, but we can stop the person with you. And, of course, the police, and I'm going to be controversial now, I think you've been quite controversial. As far as I'm concerned, you've felt pretty controversial so far. But, I mean, if this really is... This is, going is. To be, this is going to be controversial. The police like quick wins. They're under massive pressure, and their detection rate for most offences has fallen through the floor. 1.6% uh, convictions for rape last year. Um, and the police will always take a quick win. Well, a family saying, we're going to Switzerland, or a family saying, I want to change the law and I will kill myself, and my wife's going to help me, is a quick win. And unfortunately, they're the cases that end up on the Director of Public Prosecution's desk because they're quick wins. 
there's if you look at the Whaley case, and I'm glad you reminded me of the name. It's a really good example. Both of those um, people, before and after the death, well, one after the death, helped the police, admitted their um, culpability, and, and it's a quick win. You've got a sh- open and shut case, put it to the DPP, we've done our job. But if someone is more devious, if someone isn't vocal, if someone doesn't say I'm going to Switzerland, they're not on the police radar. And they won't be investigated to such a degree. And I get really angry that elderly couples who have been married for 50 or 60 years, who are trying to help each other exit in a dignified way, end up being treated as police suspects. And because they've always been taught in their generation, never lie to the police, they tell the police the truth. And then we end up with a prosecution against a 90-year-old because she was just trying to help her husband die. I'm kind of... A little bit lost for words because this whole podcast um, has been set up to interview um, experts um, and to discuss the issues um, from the centre of the debate, to look for the rights and the wrongs and the areas of potential compromise and misunderstandings and that sort of stuff. But what I'm getting from you as a you know a, a policeman who served thirty years a former policeman who served 30 years, is that you're not seeing shades of grey? No, I'm not. Um, if you said to an average... I mean, you've got to remember, I was very fortunate. I walked in the corridors of power with policing for nine years, and, and I knew every chief constable in the country at the time I was the police crime commissioner. And I spoke at length to numerous police cons- uh, police chief constables. Um, and it, there's no doubt at all in my mind that... 80 or 90% of chief constables in this country, and there are 41 of them, think this law is archaic and, and needs to be changed. Right. And maybe this is a good time to, sorry to jump in, but a good time to mention your friend and colleague and the former police and crime commissioner for Durham, uh, Ron Hogg, to talk about sort of what happened in 2019 with Ron. So in 2019, my friend Ron Hogg was diagnosed with MND and I was the lead for suicide nationally for police crime commissioners, I went straight away to um, the Association of Police Crime Commissioners and said, look, this is our work colleague, this is our friend, you will never get a better chance than this to change the law. The first thing I did was I surveyed all police crime commissioners and I said, you know, I'm the lead for suicide, Uh, there's 41 of you, I want to know how you feel. Assisted dying is as contentious as badger hunting, fox hunting, fracking you know it brings out both sides of the arguments in every part of this community in this country um but interestingly i got over 50 percent of police crime commissioners to sign a letter saying we, we think the law should be changed that i was shocked by that i didn't expect that um and so i then wrote to robert buckland as he was uh, the lord chancellor at the time saying as over 50 percent of elected officials in policing think the law needs changing i need to meet you i promised maureen um ron's wife that I would get in front of the Lord Chancellor. And uh, I got a letter from Robert Buckland saying, I'll meet you, Maureen and Ron, next week. And I sort of jumped with joy. I thought, oh, my God. And there's no doubt about it. Robert Buckland at the time, he's no longer the Lord Chancellor, but he was very committed to this. He, he had said that he would vote against it. He was, uh, if you like, uh, one of the group who doesn't believe in the law change. But he said, I do understand what you're saying, and I do understand there's a ground groundswell of opinion now that's changing. Robert Buckland's view at the time was that the Minister for Health should be leading this debate, not the Minister for the Law. 
But so how? I mean, just my question. I mean, I don't expect you to have the magic answer, but how do you think something might happen? The only way this this will resolve in one of two ways. The first is we'll get a brave politician. The second solution, um, which isn't looking good at the moment because you've just done it, is for a court case where the court orders the government to change its position. Now, they have done that in various issues. Uh, we've had a, a, the government be made to change their position on firearms by a high court. Um, there have been lots of cases where the high court has said, this is not right, change the law. But other than those two avenues, I cannot see it changing. Um, unless the third avenue, which is something we haven't talked about yet, is this growing tsunami of countries around the world who are starting to adopt the right model. But actually there is a fourth, and that's what I tried to achieve and I failed. I tried to get the police to lobby for law change. So when you look at public order, when you look at riots, um, it's very rare the police step into the reform category. They are paid, putting it bluntly, they're put, paid to put in place the law that other people far better qualified than them do make. That's, that's what we're told, um, rightly or wrongly. Um, but actually the police do get very involved in changing laws if it affects the safety of their officers, Taser is a good example, or if public safety is at threat like the Riot Act. Um, and I tried to get the senior police officers to be brave enough to take on the government and say, this is a poor law and we are traumatising our officers and traumatising families never to get a result because it never ends up in court anyway. So please change the law. That's what I tried to do. I failed. Someone bigger and better than me may achieve that because actually one thing I do know after nine years as a police crime commissioner is if the police say this has to change, the government listen. Because we haven't talked about this today and I don't want to dwell on it because it's nothing compared to what you and your family are going through, but officers find this traumatic too. Uh, you know, you say, you say to a, a cop, what's the worst thing you've ever dealt with? And the answer always comes back is the death of a baby. But the second one a lot of cops say is dealing with one of these because this is a mess. You're walking into a mess before you even start investigating it. And it just, it's like throwing a grenade into a family uh, and it explodes everywhere. And it also explodes on the officers uh, and they take that home as well. I dealt with them as a suicide prosecution as a detective inspector in West uh, Sussex in 1998. And I can still remember the case vividly because it really upset me. No, so you've done this. You, I mean, this is... I mean, interesting as a you know a real practitioner, you have had to put a group of friends or family or, or whatever through the ringer um, and present evidence to the DPP or the CPS um, um, about an assisted dying, assisted I have, suicide. I did in 1998, and it took a year to get a result. So, so uh, again, uh, at the risk of I'm trying to balance things, give people the reality. I can tell you now that if there's an investigation into your death, um, uh, it would take at least a year. When I was lobbying the ministers as the Police Crime Commission leading in this area, and because I sat on the National Police Chief Council Board, I asked the Homicide Working Group to review their position on this crime. Um, and this has never been made public uh, before. The person who chairs that uh, at the time was Stuart Cundy, Deputy Assistant Commissioner in the Met, and he did do that. He surveyed all the police forces. Frustratingly for me, he refused to give me access to that survey. 
But what he did do, uh, and I'm just going to read it to you because it's really interesting, this piece. The MPCC Homicide Working Group has now obtained feedback from all forces about current guidance and investigative practice. The key themes that are identified are, one, the public interest test factors within the DPP guidance for prosecutors tend to weigh against a prosecution even when the evidential test is met. This can be frustrating since police investigations can be time-consuming and emotive and yet lead to few prosecutions. Two, the CPS decision-making process, including the role of the DPP, can take a, a really long time. Three, there are difficulties in establishing a cause of death when the death is overseas, for example, when Dignitas is involved. And four, and this is the important one, families are often confused and angry by both the death of their loved one and the subsequent investigation. And this can cause families to lose confidence in the police and the criminal justice system. Those four bullets are the sum up why we're here today. And actually, the first bullet sounds really clinical and awful to someone like yourself. But I would stress to you that the police are very professional and, and they're talking about this, this case as if they're talking about a burglary. Yes. The law is the law and they're trying to enforce the law. But actually... The key to the, the pain and suffering being caused to thousands of people in this country are the first and fourth bullet. You know, the police put a lot of, it says here, this can be frustrating since police investigations can be time consuming and emotive and yet lead to few prosecutions. So what that is saying in a different way is, let's say you pass away, Phil, your family will go through a mass investigation, your, your house and your body will be treated as a crime scene it will completely destroy the people around you, and then there won't be a prosecution anyway. So, so why are we doing this? You know, when was the last time someone went to prison for assisting a loved one to die? Thankfully, it hasn't happened for a long time. But I, let me ask you, the arguments um, that are levelled against it all the time are, first, that the, there will be a slippery slope, and the other one is that the weak and the vulnerable, um, namely the old and um, disabled um, uh, who are most vulnerable or will be at risk um, from a change in the law. How do, how do you perceive those? I mean, if you can, with your, with your police hat on. You know, the safeguards are there to ensure we don't have another shipment. That, that's the point. The guidelines at the charities, and I include Dignity in Dying in this, are saying these will be the safeguards. They are good safeguards. You are talking about two different GPs agreeing that this person is terminally ill and that at the time that this decision is being made, that person is articulate and understands what they're doing. We're not talking about hundreds of thousands of people dying here. I'm sorry if I've shocked you. I, I, yeah, I'm, watching yeah. you I'm watching you as we're talking. Yeah. And I can see your reaction to what I've said. But the truth is that you, your family will go through pain when you die because of the stand you've taken against the, the law. And that, and that must be devastating for you. Oh, it's not and reassuring, it's put, put it that way. Yeah, and um, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's a sobering thought that having got arsy about this, that there might be another sting in the tail um, and the future is looking pretty bleak anyway. Talking on a personal level, because that's where we've taken this, my, my strongest advice to you is that you prepare yourself and your family for all of the eventualities that can happen. And if you haven't already, I would already have a solicitor engaged. Really? I, I remember speaking to Ron two days before he had his relapse. And then, and then when he had his relapse, he was gone, effectively. He was 
really poorly in hospital on a ventilator. Um, and, and that, you know, sadly, that could happen to you in two days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then your loved ones will suddenly get a knock on the door. Uh, and my strong advice to you is, one, they should know what that knock on the door means. Mm-hmm. And two, as soon as there is a knock on the door, they have a phone number to phone say they're here. So I, I can, cannot stress that enough. If you do that and there isn't a knock on the door, you've probably spent £1,000. But I, do you know what? You're giving a lot of protection to your loved ones. Well, okay, right. Well, um, you, you've given us, you've shared you know, a load of professional uh, thinking, some personal experience professionally and some personal personal experience. And thank you for you know, unravelling all of that um, for us and um, giving me um, some stuff to think about, particularly possibly contacting a lawyer, a solicitor. Um, I'm not delighted by that, but if that's the reality, thank you for the advice. Well, you've got more than three advice. Can I have your phone number? I want to be there for you. So, One of the reasons that I, I couldn't kind of switch off from listening to that interview was how... It was very black and white, wasn't it, from his point of view? And this is the, you know, this is part of the reason we wanted that kind of um, opinion from someone who'd worked in the police. But it is black and white. A crime could have been committed and there will be a certain level of compassion, but mostly they will be treating your home as a crime scene and your family as suspects. Yeah, I mean, he he definitely didn't sugarcoat it, did he? And... I guess he can't have been doing it for effect. So it's not like talking, you know, occasionally when I've been involved in this, um, when we were doing the court case two or three years ago, I'd be talking to the campaigners who would sort of say, you know, of course, you're at risk of prosecution or your family is if someone helps you. And you sort of know it, but I think at that moment, I think, well, that person's giving me the worst case scenario. But hearing it from, from Martin, it was a little bit chilling. And I had come from it very much the same place you had, that if you've been so open about wanting to take control um, about the end of your life and take your own life if, as when that felt like the right thing to do, I would have presumed, like you did, that that would mean all the evidence to show that this was what you wanted would be there. And so they would tread more carefully, but it was the opposite. Because you've done that, they would be... And because your head's kind of above the parapet you'll be under more scrutiny. One thing I was really interested about was um, it is also saying, as well as being a horrible thing for a policeman or a police officer to um, investigate, it's also a fairly quick thing. So it's not like a fraud that's ha- happened to hundreds of people across loads of jurisdictions or a rape where there's really complex circumstances and, and um, uh, uh, forensics. This is, you know, a case that can be pulled together by the police and submitted to the CPS. And that means they can tick a box and the stats go up by a fraction. And that was also a bit of a frightening kind of thought to to hear that from someone in the know. Have you followed up on his advice or do you think you will follow up on his advice of seeking a solicitor? No, but it does make me reevaluate something. And this is, I mean, this is quite serious stuff, I guess. You know, I'd looked at, Two, three years ago, I'd looked at the, um, about all you can read on the, on the Dignitas website and the, um, the other website, which is called Life Circle, the other clinic in Switzerland. And I've been kind of appalled by, not by those organizations, but by the prospect of 
going abroad for um, an assisted death or a compassionate death, as they call it. And I couldn't understand really what would drive someone to get on an aeroplane to Switzerland and and um, um, uh, end their lives in those circumstances. And and now having had it so starkly from um, from you know a a senior cop, a former police commissioner, what would happen? What will happen to my family uh, if I tried to get, take control? What would happen to my home if it was then turned into a crime scene? To my body, which you were talking about, wasn't it like it would, I would have at least um, one autopsy, possibly two, done on the body? And, you know, those things are, they're not nice prospects. So I can sort of understand a lot better now why people who have really gone into this and really thought about it end up at Dignitas. This podcast wasn't, this was set to explore assisted dying it wasn't really particularly set to try and find a position on it but I do as I look through the options I knew they were bleak I have over the last week or two come up with the only thing that I can do now um in the in the short term while I try and get my own head around this stuff is bring my horizon right down to the here and now and trying to deal with that because the future is so um uncertain and the options are so poor I've always said it and I've often known it, but to really feel it is a different thing. Are you still in a place where you don't really have anyone to talk to about this stuff other than through the medium of this podcast? Or do you have, obviously Charlotte knows what's going on because she's living it with you. No, well, I finished, just finished just before this call a um, um, a conversation with, with Charlotte and I have as a sort of, I guess it's couples counselling with our local hospice. It's really good and we talk every four or five weeks with someone there just to get through our own, you know, to deal with our own interpersonal differences and how we try and get our family through this. And that's an amazing service. But I guess it's not, that's focused on us as a couple and us as a family. Um, it's quite nice to be able to get it all off your chest into a microphone that, that kind of wanders into the laptop and straight into your study. Having done what we've done so far, I kind of see a need for this, a process like this as sort of therapy and sort of moments of catharsis so you've been really helpful um in in this and and i thank you because the whole project was your idea and i didn't expect to go on so much of a a journey through it and for it to be such a difficult journey as well thanks for listening to kill phil we'd love to hear your thoughts and questions Follow us on social media at Kill Podcast or email killphil at jackandgrace.co.uk. Next time, Phil will explore that key word, compromise, in a very special conversation with someone who campaigns against a law change. See you soon.